0: Hey friends, Jason Miller here, and this is the podcast for South Bend City Church. Um, By the way, if you hear noise in the background, that would be my 90-pound golden retriever playing in the next room. Sorry about that. But hey, maybe you needed some joy, and there he is. Um, Hey, we are not a church yet, but we are on our way to becoming a church, and we're using this podcast as one of the spaces where we're exploring some things together. Maybe you've missed uh, some of what we've done in person, and this is a way for you to catch up. Uh, Our next experimental gathering is happening on August 21st. It's a Sunday morning, and what we're actually going to do is join a church in Grand Rapids, Michigan, called Mars Hill, and uh, hang out there in that service. I'm actually going to be up there preaching that Sunday, and I asked them if I could bring some friends with me, like all of you. (laughs) They were amazing, and they said, yeah, bring them. So they've been really gracious and have decided to make some space for us to be up there, and it'll give us a chance to see how they worship together, which I just find to be a really inspiring and beautiful way of working out some of the threads that we've been exploring together even through our first experimental gathering. So that's Sunday, August 21st. Now check this out. We're going to charter some buses because nothing builds community like a road trip, right? And we're going to make sure that you sign up. Uh, It's important obviously because we're booking seats and filling buses up and paying for them and all that stuff. So we're going to charge a small fee that's just meant to offset some of the cost, and even more importantly, make sure that we don't waste money, um, paying for capacity that we don't end up needing. So hopefully that makes sure that you check your calendar really carefully before you decide to sign up for that. But we'd love to have a whole bunch of you come on up on August 21st. Uh, details at southpencitychurchcom slash events. Uh, on our way to becoming a church, there's some really good stuff happening that I want you to know about because a bunch of you have been praying and giving and helping us make these things happen. So team building is a really big deal, and we've been able to extend invitations to some phenomenal first-rate leaders who are going to join our staff now they're not joining the staff quite yet. Uh, we still need to raise more funds to to provide for the ministry so they can move their families and quit their jobs and be a part of this church. But we are getting closer, and uh, that's largely thanks to you and what all you have done. And location scouting, uh, we have begun actively looking around the city to figure out the place that we will call home when we get going um, before too long here. And so you should know about that. You can pray for that. And just know that um, everything that you give right now is making that a possibility. And we need to keep pressing, and we need to keep giving together. And if, uh, if things keep going well, then we'll be able to pull the trigger on those things soon. Uh, now, let's turn our attention to our last experimental gathering, which happened uh, a little over a week ago. And this was with a guy named Peter Rollins to help us explore doubt and faith. Now, these experimental gatherings, it's helpful to be sure of how to think about them. Uh, because say a new restaurant was going to open up in South Bend and you thought, hey, this is great, let's check it out. You walk into the dining room and they put a plate in front of you and you're probably thinking, okay, this should be perfect and balanced and I'm just here to consume it and I'll decide if I like it, right? Well, if that's a restaurant, that's not a bad thing to do, but I'm not sure that's really a way to build a church. So maybe a better way to think about this is a new restaurant's opening in town And the team back in the kitchen invited you to come back in the kitchen, put an apron on, try some things, taste some things, and do some creating with us. That's a a closer metaphor for what we hope can happen through these gatherings. So if you're in the kitchen, you know, the the chef might say, hey, taste this artisan salt, this finishing salt that I have. And you taste the salt and you'd say, oh, that's that's really salty. And the chef would say well yeah of course it's just salt you know but you get this raw ingredient you can understand its flavor and then we're going to put it in the meal and it'll be balanced and beautiful or maybe it's a really spicy hot habanero pepper or something like that well in the kitchen things sometimes aren't perfectly balanced but you get this raw encounter with these ingredients And you get to create something instead of just consume something. And that's what we want for these experimental gatherings. And so I hope that sort of frames how you interact with what you're about to hear from Peter or how you thought about the last one that we had, which is our first episode on the podcast. Uh, So for this experimental gathering, we wanted to wrestle with doubt. Now, a lot of us uh, would be honest and say, hey, doubt's a big part of my life. I ask questions about my faith. I'm not always certain about this or that, and I'm not sure what to do with that. Um, Peter Rollins has this unique gift to pull out the ways that doubt and faith play unexpectedly in the Jesus story, and that's why we brought him in. Uh, He's uh, really well trained. He has a PhD in post-structural theory, which I I don't really know what that means, but it sounds really good. Uh, He's a philosopher, a writer, a speaker. He's done really phenomenal work with communities in Belfast and New York, and now he lives in L.A., but Peter flew out from L.A. uh, to the Midwest to join us in South Bend just to be with our community for a bit. Now, whenever I hear Peter, you should know that I really have like three reactions usually, like whenever I hear Peter or read Peter, there's a little part of me that thinks, yes, thank you for, for showing me that there is space in this story. There is room within the Jesus story to wrestle with these questions of doubt. So I feel really grateful for that. And then also like whenever I hear Peter, I, I find myself really disagreeing with some of what he says. and not really sure that I can go where he's going. And then there's a third thing that I feel often when I hear Peter, which is like, I don't know what to do with some of this. Like, I don't have categories for that. I don't have boxes that that neatly fits into. But that's actually why I like Peter so much, because I know that in my life, most of the learning experiences that have really caused me to grow as a human being have felt like that. They've been sort of a mix of feelings of affirmation and frustration and even a little bit of confusion. But I know that those are the learning experiences that help us grow. Now, unfortunately, sometimes churches inadvertently or intentionally set themselves up to protect themselves from that kind of experience. But I, I think that's really uh, unfortunate and really tragic. And with South Bend City Church, we don't wanna so much protect ourselves from those experiences of questioning and wrestling and doubting and challenging. We, we wanna create space for that experience together as a community so that we can grow through that together. And we thought that Peter would be the perfect person to bring in for that. So we had him here last week, we had a great time. We had a huge turnout. Um, so many of you uh, who came to be a part of this night, which was so helpful. Uh, Some of that night was Q&A. It doesn't translate that well on podcast here, um, but we're going to give you sort of the core of Peter's message so that you can go back to that night with us. And I know a lot of you were there, but you're looking forward to hearing it again because Peter throws a lot out there. And I know for me, listening back to that evening, it's it's been really helpful for me to process it more. So whether you were there or not, uh, we hope that this episode helps you keep journeying with us on our way to becoming South Bend City Church. Here we go.
1: that Jason has of me is the same experience I have of myself Uh, so we're in good company sometimes I take crazy things I'm like no way I don't agree with that at all and I don't know what to do with it and and I want to invite you into that experience as well Um, you know as a speaker I obviously want lots of little Pete Rollinses running around the world, thinking like I think, seeing the world like I see. I'm up here because I'm insecure, and I want you all to think like I do, because then the world would be a better place. And your job is to fight that and to resist that, to make sure you don't agree with me. And if you agree with me that you shouldn't agree with me, then you agree with me that you shouldn't agree with me, and I'm already winning, okay? Um, Because, you know, in, in philosophy, it's truly really, one of the things you have to really drive home at the beginning is to try to avoid simple agreement or disagreement. Because agreement and disagreement is often the way we try to hide non-critical thinking in critical thinking. So if I hear you speak and I agree with something you say, then I put it in one box. And if I disagree with something, I put it in the other. So what I'm constantly doing is is I've got my system, my way of thinking about things, and whatever you say, broadly speaking, goes into one of those buckets. Uh, But often, just the most productive way to think um, is to try to suspend that for a while whenever you're reading a book or listening to a speaker, and try to be disturbed by what they say, which means try to see if what they're saying might rupture your worldview a little bit. And then, of course, at the end, you may get back to where you were, but even if you do, you're probably going to hold that a little bit differently. Uh, It's maybe going to be something that you feel you've gone deeper in. Um, and, and this idea of wrestling and fighting and disagreeing is, is is very much in the heart of the tradition we share. Uh, Israel means to fight, to fight with God. This is why the Irish are God's chosen people, right? <laughs> the, uh, the Irish and the Jewish, because we love a good fight, right? You know, if you go to an Irish pub, it, back home, you know, you start off, and everything's great you have a drink it's all wonderful you're chatting away talking about your life after a few more drinks you're 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 have, you're kind of going i love you uh you know you if i ever die you can have my kids in fact just have my kids just take them here's my car whatever you want you know and then after that you're in a fight you're hitting each other you're saying i never want to see you again i don't know how your mother ever gave birth to you without screaming and all of this and then it's like at the end it's uh okay i'll see you next week Okay, I'll see you next week, and it happens. And that, that's what therapy is in many ways. You go and you get annoyed at your therapist, why am I here, I'm spending all this money, you don't care, et cetera, et cetera, and then you go back next week, and you go back next week. What's important is, is uh, that you remain in the room with the conflict, because this is the problem with war. War is not conflict. Uh, war is the inability to have conflict. So in a war, you cannot stand the difference of the other, so you want to kill them. Right? Um, you cannot stand to be in a conflictual relationship, and so you just want to destroy them. So in a strange sense, um, our inability to have conflict leads to greater and greater violence, um, one way or the other, either in kind of like an aggressive way or in this very passive way where someone says, bless your heart in a way that sounds like they want you to die. Right? Cause <laughs> We, we aren't able to healthily express kind of some sort of uh, critical stuff. So that's what I want to invite you into. And in fact, that's the topic of the, the conversation tonight in many ways. Um, as I, as uh, Jason was saying, I, I arrived without my luggage, which is sad for me, because I was going to try to sell books to you, suckers. <laughs> um, but, uh, but Jason said, most of you have brought books for refunds. So that probably wouldn't have worked. People say this to me, your book didn't work. And I'm going, it did work. It did work. When you bought it, you gave me $3. It worked perfectly. You know? <laughs> if you're not sure, just buy another one. You know? It's like a prosperity gospel, but for me. right? <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. But uh, except, ironically, existential angst and doom does not sell very well. <laughs> so um, the, the whole prosperity thing going slowly. Uh, But yeah, no, Rio de Janeiro, supposedly, there is an upside. Um, uh, My luggage always wanted to go there, Uh, so I'm getting photographs, status updates, seems to be having a wonderful time. Uh, I also only have one set of clothes, so like my gold suit that I was going to wear, you know, you're sadly left with this, and I didn't have the pyrotechnics, you know, so anyway, but I made it, I made it just about, hey, hey, there you go. Shucks. Clap now. You won't be clapping at the end, honestly. Um, Yeah, so I I want to explore this idea of doubt, questioning conversation. And, um, you know, I want to start with a story, an old kind of parable of sorts. And it's about this mystic. And this old mystic, uh, is cycling down the road, and it just so happens that there's also this young pastor who's driving in his Prius the other direction, and there's this tent revivalist guy who's in his big Hummer, and he's driving down the road, and they all crash. There's a big accident. They all die. Uh, the 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 mystics on his little bike. The you know, pastor in his car, and then the, the, the tent revivalist guy just has a heart attack. He's got a big car, but he's so shocked by everything. And they end up in heaven, right? And as we know from Revelation, you have to have an interview with Jesus before you get into heaven. So they're sitting in the waiting room, waiting for their interview. St. Peter comes out and says, okay, Jesus is ready to see you now. And um, he's gonna start with you, points to the mystic. The mystic gets up, walks to this interview room, Doors open, walks in, meeting in progress, whatever. Half an hour later, the door creaks open. The little mystic just comes out and he's smiling to himself going, ah, I knew I was wrong, you know. I, at least I knew that I knew that I was wrong. And he, he walks into heaven. And then next it's the young pastor. The young pastor gets up, he walks in, meeting room signs turned. And he's in there for about an hour. And then he comes out, the door opens, and he's distraught. He's very unhappy. He's like, I studied at Bethel, I, 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 read, I read all my Josh McDowell, I, I did all of that, and I can't believe I got it so wrong. My goodness, so dumb, so dumb, right? And walks on into heaven. And finally, it's a tent revivalist guy, and he gets up, he's got a big Bible, and it's all underlined, and color-coordinated and whatever. And he walks in, meeting signs turned, and after about an hour and a half, the door flies open and Jesus runs out saying, how could I have been so wrong? Right? Now, yeah. When I hear that, I go like, you know, I, I understand that in myself, that was me and probably continues to be me at times when my back's against the wall. You know, the, there's, there's often a desire for us to have certainty and nobody can take that away from us, we we surround ourselves with people who think like us, and books that solidify our position, maybe TV programs that solidify our position, and you know this is just a natural thing for human beings to do, it's not particular for any particular religion. Um, Just we often find a security um, and a way to deal with anxiety that comes from a certain certainty. And this happens when we're very young. When you're a child, you're in a world that is chaotic and crazy and difficult to grasp. Your whole body is difficult to coordinate. Everything is a bit scary. And there's two things that are predominant that children often do to deal with that anxiety. One of them is, uh, you know, they're given stories. So the little boy grazes his elbow or his knee and you say you're a brave soldier you know you're you're strong you know look at you you're brave or a little girl she comes in and she's got her little princess dress on and you're a princess you're beautiful and you these stories but it's not true the little kid is not a brave soldier brave soldiers do not cry whenever they get a grazed elbow like you're not in vietnam like oh no crying because you grazed your knee right and the little girl isn't a princess it's a five dollar target dress real princesses (laughs) don't wear five dollar target dresses okay right and have a wand no and, and there are little girls sitting around sorry it's not true you're a little princess wherever that girl was but but you know but the other ones they're not real princesses right with a star in the end um but, you know, it's, it's or kids, you go, like, you're so strong. You're so, you know, doing an arm wrestle with a five-year-old or whatever. Or, or you're so fast racing with a... Ch-. They're not strong. Kids are weak. I can beat a kid any day of the week in an arm wrestle or in a race. It, it, hands down, I'd put money on it right now. You bring a five-year-old to me, I will beat them. Gets to about eight or nine, and it starts to get a bit iffy. But, you know, if they're young enough, I can beat them. And, but these stories are useful and they're helpful. Um, they help us feel strong when we're weak, feel capable when we're not, feel we've got a grasp of things when we don't. Uh, another thing that we do as children is most children um, have a obsessive characteristics. So um, obsessive is someone who creates rituals that, they, that help to you know uh, manage anxiety. And lots of kids as you know, they have to touch taps a certain amount of times or not walk on the cracks or have to be read a story repeatedly again and again and again, the same story. These are kind of obsessive practices. And one of, again, the reasons we do this is because they help us feel a little bit more secure in our lives. And as a parent, you, of course, you know, give in to these a little bit. But eventually, you also have to... Help break them out of it. Sometimes because you're so bored of the story, right? You don't help, want to read it ever again in your life, um, or just because you're going. This this is not helpful. Because the um, the main problem with obsessive activities like this is just that the world is not as loving or forgiving as your family. You know, you can't go to your boss. Okay, the CEO was over from South Africa. It was a twenty million dollar wager, but I'll tell you, there were so many cracks on the road, I could not make it to work. You know what? What do you expect me to do? You know, or yeah, uh, yeah. You know, I know that like we've got a whole big thing we're doing, and we're merging with another company. But like, I had to dust the house five times because I'm sure there was some dust left. You're going to get fired, right? The, what you have to do is very gradually help the child look at why they're doing the activity. So maybe there's a monster under the bed and they always have to have their teddy bears lined up in a certain way. And eventually you say, well, why do you do that? Well, I'm scared of the monster. The monster doesn't come when the teddies are lined up. And then you push a bit further and you might find that the the, monster is always more Uh, prevalent when their father is at work. Maybe he works on some oil rigs, he's away for a month at a time. And then you start to work out that, ah, this is about the father being away and what the anxiety that that creates in the child. And then you have to begin to talk about that, because maybe, of course, the father has to work on the oil rigs. But you can at least talk about that and say, well, your father does that because he loves you and cares about you and you know, wants to make money, whatever it is. And you begin to look at what's lying underneath the obsessive behavior. So these are things that we learn very early on. We want a set of beliefs that give us a sense of place in the universe, a purpose. And we often have rituals that, again, help to mediate against our anxiety, help us feel safe. But as we grow, uh, if we do not begin to look at what lies beneath those things, they can become problematic. As, and as adults, we can continue the same behavior with rituals and beliefs that we hold on to so tightly so that we can you know, get through life. They don't really do much in terms of our day to day existence, they just help us sleep better. There's an old story from Northern Ireland that that captures this about uh, the RUC, which was the police force during the Troubles. And the story goes, they were given some peace money to come over to America and train with the FBI and the CIA. And they land and they're greeted by this team builder guy, brings them to this forest and they meet their counterparts. And the first test they have to do is go into a forest and retrieve a rabbit. And uh, the FBI go first and they, go into the forest, they're in there for a while, you hear a single gunshot ring through the air, and they come out with a rabbit, dead, bullet through the head, perfect shot. I did this in a church once just after, at Easter, just after a child's address, (laughs) that involved rabbits, and the kids were like, because I was like, bullet through the back of the head, guts everywhere. Um, uh, So um, yeah, and then, then it's the CIA's turn, they slink in, uh, you don't hear anything for about an hour and then you hear a single twig snap and they come out with a rabbit dead but not a mark on its body, right? just find it like that little pin down there but it's fine, um, so yeah, then it's the REC's turn and they get on their flat jackets, they get their plastic bullet rounds, they charge in like a scene from Braveheart and they're in there for ages and finally they come out and the biggest REC man, big smile on his face is dragging a bear behind him and the uh, Team Builder guy says, what are you doing? He says, you are in there for three weeks, he says. And that's not a rabbit, that's a bear. And the RUC man just smiles, looks at the bear. The bear starts to shake and goes, I'm a rabbit, I'm a rabbit. Right? Now, tells you something about the RUC, but um. am But it also is sometimes your experience of churches. you're in the room when you're young, the doors are closed, you're playing table tennis or whatever, everything's great, the music's playing, and then some young guy gets up, turns his seat back to front, sits down and tells you about his friend Jesus, who wants you to burn in hell, right? And then, and if you don't believe, if you leave, you don't know what's going to happen to you, you could get hit by a bus, something like that. And he says it like a twinkle in his eye as if they've got bus drivers paid to (laughs) knock you over like it's a threat from the the like a mafia threat you know i don't know if you don't pay your your insurance who knows what will happen to your business it might end up in flames who knows um and you're terrified i'm a christian i'm a christian um and you know it, it allays anxiety and you hold this belief and it kind of identifies you with a certain group of inside, and it also identifies who's outside, who's pure, who's impure, all of that stuff. Um, and, and, and we feel safe. But actually, there is this very deep and very rich tradition within uh, Christianity and Judaism and other religions that, that actually is about trying to crack that open. That's not about getting you to a point where you affirm something, affirm some belief, but actually is about drawing you into a conversation, a conversation that has been going on thousands of years before you came on the scene and will be continuing on thousands of years after you've left. That theology, although it often looks solid and unchanging over time, um, is actually a history of rich sometimes aggressive, sometimes enjoyable conversations um, that that have been going on. And the invitation into this is the invitation into the the life of faith. The Jewish tradition has some wonderful parables, old parables that, that describe this. One of my favorites is this bizarre one where this old rabbi in his 80s is sitting at home one day, and this young guy knocks on the door, and he opens it. This young guy says, teach me the wisdom of the Hebrew people. And the guy looks at him and says, you're too young. Go away. Come back to me in 10 years' time. Go enjoy yourself. But he says, no, I want to, I want to learn your wisdom. I want to learn the wisdom of the divine. I want to learn the wisdom of the Jewish people. And he says, okay, I'll, I'll give you a test. See how you do. See if you're ready. He says, two people come down a chimney, and at the bottom of the chimney, one has soot on their face and one doesn't. Who washes their face? The young guy says, well, the guy with the soot on his face, and the rabbi says, no, it's the guy without the soot on his face. Why? Well, because he sees that the other person has soot on his face, so therefore he thinks, oh, I must have soot on my face, and so he washes his face. The young guy thinks, all oh, right, it's a trick question. Okay, okay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And the rabbi says, just go away. And he says, no, test me. He says, I know symbolic logic. I know Aristotelian logic. I'm ready for this. Just test me again. And so the rabbi says, okay, I will ask you a different question. Two guys come down a chimney, and at the bottom, one is soot in their face. Tell me, who washes their face? The young guy says, Well, the guy without the suit on his face because he sees his friend has suit in his face. And the rabbi says, No. Stop trying to be clever. The guy with the suit on his face. He tastes it in his mouth. He feels it in his eyes. How could you not know? Don't be stupid, right? Go away. The young guy is like confused. And he says, Just please test me one more time. And the rabbi says, Okay, this time a different question. Two guys come down a chimney, one has soot on their face and one doesn't, who washes their face? And the young guy says, was it the first answer I gave but for different reasons? And the rabbi says, no, it was neither of them. They both washed their face. How can you not come down a chimney and not think you've got soot on your face, go home and leave me alone, right? Like <laughs> when you hear this parable, you go, what does it mean? What's going on? And then you think, well, maybe the rabbi is trying to teach this young guy something. This young guy thinks that it's all about having the right answer, coming in and knowing something. And the rabbi is trying to say, no, 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 no. This is a conversation. If you're not ready to argue and to fight and to think and to, to throw out different ideas and wrestle with this, you're not ready. There's nothing wrong with not being ready. Just go back, enjoy your life. If you've got certainty and you know the answers, great. Come back to me whenever you're a little bit less certain, and then it can start. right This is what Heidegger said about his philosophy students. He says, people think that students are there to learn and teachers are there to teach it's like it's like you've never been to university. have you ever met first year students, they know everything. you know that was like me, I went into university because I already knew the truth. I just wanted philosophy to back it up right and actually. It's, it's the students who know everything and the lecturers who don't. The lecturers you are trying to teach you a type of unknowing, to try to open you up to other possibilities, to other ideas. What um, Thomas Aquinas would have called a learned unknowing. Not an ignorance that comes from a lack of reading. Not an ignorance that comes from a lack of thinking. But an ignorance that comes from lots of thinking and reflection and reading and conversation. And they are very, very different. Someone might say to you, Oh, if you're going to study some academic discipline and get into that theology or whatever, you know, you're just going to get enslaved by theory. But actually, there's an old philosophical wisdom, I think, that says those who do not know theory are the most enslaved by it, which means that we are already immersed in ideas and in theories. And actually, to begin to escape from them, you actually need to think and to read and to encounter lots of other theories just so that you begin to see your own and begin to think a little bit differently. So in this parable, you have the rabbi saying, you're still at that place where you think you know it all. This tradition starts with this idea of the unknowable, unsayable, divine. There is within the Hebrew scriptures, as you know, multiple names of God. So many of them. So many of them, and they often clash. They don't sit beside each other. One God is a warrior, and then another God as a peacemaker. God who never changes, God who changes. God who is blind to things, and God who sees everything. And, and it's not that these are different writers, not knowing what the other person wrote. Often they are employed by the same writer. There's uh, Meister Eckhart said, The unnameable is omni-nameable, which means that one of the ways that you say you're speaking of something that cannot be spoken is by an excess of names that clash, that smash, that bring out other things that don't quite fit together. That partly reminds you that what you're thinking about kind of transcends and breaks thinking. And then, of course, in the midst of it, you have a name that can't even be said, the Tetragrammaton. This privileged name that's unsayable, this beautiful way of going, this name of the divine, you can't even say. This is a critique of the notion that God has a name. And if you know the name, you have power. There's an old tradition about the first woman in the Bible. Does anybody know the first woman in the Bible? It's obviously a trick question. So if anyone says Eve, you've got to leave because that's obviously what it's not. If I'm gonna, <laughs> otherwise, I'm really patronizing you. The uh, first woman in the Bible. Have you heard of Adam and Eve? Yeah. Um, does anybody actually know the answer? Oh, well, it's Lilith, supposedly, according to an ancient rabbinical tradition. Because the rabbis read Genesis, right? And they saw this thing. It said, on the sixth day, God created male and female. Right? Great. And then later on, it says... After Adam had named all the animals and and he was alone and he was bored, God said, I should make a helper for him. And so as he slept, he created Eve out of Adam's side. So the rabbis were like, oh my goodness, who was this first woman? She must have been mustard. She must have been a nightmare because nobody ever mentions her, right? On the sixth day, male and female, and then later on, Eve. So they said, oh, Adam and Lilith were the first pair. And Lilith, um, she was having a great old time, but Adam was fearful of her. Uh, He wanted to rule over her rather than live with her as a lover, rule over her as a lord. And Lilith began to freak out about this. And so the story goes that Lilith once saw Yahweh walking through the garden, beautiful day. And Lilith says, let's sit together and talk. So God and Lilith sit together, and they, they talk, they chat for hours, they, they, they watch the sunset. And then Lilith says, tell me your name. Not the name that we know, your secret name. Tell me your secret name. And God was in a good mood, and he's just whiling away the day, and so he lets it slip. <gasps> Lilith has the name. She speaks it, grows massive wings from her back, and flies out of Eden, only to return one more time in a different guise to try to free Adam and Eve, right? You think, who could that be, right? Now, this old tradition comes from the idea that gods have names. And if you know the name, you can have the power of God. If we had time, which, oh my goodness, we really don't. Wow, I've been talking for a while. Lock the doors. We're not leaving for a while. Right. I'll get there. Don't worry. Um, uh, yes. Uh, yeah. We, I could go into an in Egypt, Egyptian myth. It's the same. Ra, um, you know, is, is, is stolen. Uh, his secret name is stolen by um, Isis and uh, uh not the isis <laughs> and not the goddess isis um yeah it's com- it's complicated um, but but that probably comes from that you know but that's why whenever you read in exodus 3 where Moses is saying what's your name you've got to understand and read that in the context of Moses is going okay i want to know your secret name what's your name and what does god say i shall be there howsoever i shall be there in other words you can't say my name my name is unnameable it's the name of no name I shall be there. My name is presence. My name is a verb. My name is being. So, anyway, it's a critique of the idea of naming, which is what we want. We want to name the divine, get the answer, pull it down, you know? and, and again, one other then parable, ancient Jewish parable, is that the two rabbis you are arguing then about a passage in the Torah, they're wanting to know what it means. And God gets so bored of this. God's got the patience of a saint, but even he gets annoyed, and he parts the clouds, he goes down, and he says, I will tell you what this passage means. And in a rare moment of unity, the two rabbis turn to God and say, what right have you to come down here and tell us what it means? You clear off back to heaven and let us argue about it, right? Because the idea within the Jewish tradition is you cannot say, you cannot say the divine, you cannot name the divine, you cannot reduce God to words, experiences, any of that. Not because there's a lack of meaning, but because there's an excess. It's like looking at a painting and not being able to work out what it means, not because there's a lack of meaning, but because there's so much meaning. There's so much, You have to, that's why you have to go back to your favorite paintings again and again. And as you return to the painting, it speaks to you in new and different ways that you can't even imagine, right? That's like parables. Parables don't have a lack of meaning. Parables are annoyingly excessive in their meaning. So if anybody comes to you and says, this is what it means, they're missing the point of the parable. If the artist says, this is what the piece of art means, they're kind of missing the point of the art. If God says, this is, wh- now, this is what I wanted. I wanted God to tell me exactly what these verses meant. But the idea is, what if there's a type of hypernimity is the term for it. Anonymity is when you don't know something because there is a lack. And hypernimity is when you don't know something because there is a sheer excess. And to nail things down is fundamentally missing the point. The mystics were great at this. Anselm, who was one of the great Christian thinkers of the scholastic period, he had a definition of God that is, surprisingly simple-sounding, but very sophisticated. He said, God is that than which none greater can be conceived. God is that than which none greater can be conceived. Now, a lot of people, when they hear that, they think that he's saying, God is the greatest conceivable being. But he's not. Because you can conceive of something bigger than what you can conceive. (laughs) You can conceive of the possibility that there's something greater than you can conceive. And that would be better than what you can conceive. Anselm is saying, God is not the greatest thing you can conceive. That's idolatry. That's reducing the the infinite to the finite. That's taking the iconic nature of, of theology and making it into an idol. God is the name we give. To that which ruptures our understanding cannot ever be captured. That kind of is a type of trauma. What is a trauma? A trauma is an event that so impacts you, you cannot conceptualise it properly. So when a traumatic event happens, like if you're in a war zone, and and then after you know they, this happened in Northern Ireland actually there was an explosion, and. They interviewed people afterwards and multiple people had, first of all, the same experience of picking up a severed hand uh, that was, was lying somewhere. But obviously not everybody could have done that. And, other, and, and also people's ways of talking about it were differing depending on who they were talking to. There was a sense in which they would say one thing to one person, another to another, and the, the testimonies weren't fitting. This is what happens in trauma. So if you're in court and you're listening to someone who has had a traumatic event happen, if they're able to have a very consistent narrative, that's not necessarily evidence they're telling the truth. That can be a hint that they're lying, that you know they've created a very structured thing. Whereas if they can't, if what they said to the police is different to what they said to their family, different, what, sometimes that can be evidence that it's just that this event has happened that, 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 that short circuits The mind. This is why we, you could say, we have four gospels that don't fit very neatly together at all. There was an early church father, Tashian, tried to put them all into one, and he was condemned as a heretic. Like, you can't do that. I mean, there's four, and they're really, if you read them carefully, don't fit neatly together at all. Because in a sense, maybe they're speaking of the unspeakable. Poetry, which smashes words together, To speak, to almost like bend language so much that you get glimpses of what language cannot communicate. It's very powerful. That's what the best songwriters and poets often do. They somehow use language in a way that, that just about moves that allows you to glimpse something else.
0: So that's a little bit of our last experimental gathering with Peter Rollins talking about doubt and faith. Uh, we did some Q&A. Like I said, it doesn't translate that well to the podcast here. Uh, I promise our technology will get better <laughs> once, once we uh, have a chance to get our hands on some better stuff. But for now, uh, let me take it to the ending where, of course, we turned to a good word, uh, a benediction. May we... Uh, be a family who wraps our arms around one another regardless of what anybody in this family believes. May we be people who take our cue from Jesus, who looks at every other kind of person and said, you too can belong with us and be loved in our midst. May we be the ones who discover the sacred power of mystery and questions as much as we discover the sacred power of the story of Jesus. May we be the ones who hear the Psalms that cry out and ask and wrestle and dig into the darkness as much as we celebrate the Psalms of hope and light may we be a fantastic church for questions amen amen, amen. thank That's you guys drink. so much